We are reading from Philippians chapter 4, starting from verse 10 to the end of the chapter and the letter. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Aphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here, if I haven't met you. About nine years ago, I was in Fiji, and um, when I was there, I read a local newspaper, and there was an article in it about a TV evangelist who was coming to town. Now, this guy, he was your, your typical kind of TV evangelist, right down to the white suit and all. And thousands of people in Fiji were going up to Suva to see this guy. But the journalist who was writing the article wasn't as enthusiastic about him as all those people. And she asked this one small question. Why was this TV evangelist arriving in Fiji in his own private jet while their Prime Minister flew economy class? Now, I thought that was a fairly reasonable question. In fact, it made me feel a little bit sick to be in that country that's third world in places and to think of this guy turning up in his white suit and asking for money. We hear stories like this and stories of churches where they have two sermons, one from the Bible and one asking for money. We hear stories of generosity being turned into greed, where people say, if you give God more money, you'll get more money. We hear those kind of stories and our reaction is to want to do the opposite, isn't it? 
to never want to talk about money in church. And it's understandable. But just because some people get something wrong doesn't mean that we should swing in the complete opposite direction. I mean, think about it. It's wrong to go, some churches place too much emphasis on music so that it's more like a rock concert. So we're going to do the opposite and make our music as boring as possible. It's ridiculous. And it would be ridiculous for us to never talk about money just because some Christians get it horribly wrong. When you think about it, it's actually more important for us to be talking about money in that case. So that's what we're going to do today. Jesus himself talked a lot about money. And the way the Bible sees money is that it's a litmus test. Do you remember litmus tests? I've I've kind of got a picture up here of one. Can't really see it very well. You probably remember it from high school. You've got some liquid in a beaker and you don't know whether it's an acid or a base. So you get this little bit of paper and you dip it in. This is probably all horribly wrong. Sorry if you actually know what you're talking about in this area. But this is my understanding. You dip in the bit of paper and if it changes colours, then you know what you've got. Well, it's the same with money. It's litmus paper for our hearts. What I think and what I do with money tells me pretty quickly the truth about who my heart belongs to. Now, if you're not a Christian today and and you've joined us, we're really glad to have you here. We're going to be talking about some stuff that will probably sound a little bit strange to you. But I'm actually not apologetic about that, really, because you're getting a chance to see into the hearts of Christians. You're getting a chance to see what it is that really makes us tick, what it is about Jesus that revolutionizes the way that we think about life, our priorities, and how we view money. But for the rest of us, so I mean, if that's you, see if you can figure out what it is that makes Christians tick. But for the rest of us, our mission for today is to figure out what it looks like for us to be generous. And along the way, I'd love it if we could kind of do that litmus test on ourselves. But first, I'm going to remind us of the Bible's framework for understanding generosity. This is the framework that we saw two weeks ago. Um, And this is really the guts of it. We're made to be generous because God is generous and Christ calls us back to generosity. We're made to be generous because God's generous and Christ calls us back to generosity. Remember that we saw um, that God designed us to have generosity at our core. So Jesus said these words in Matthew 22. The heart, he, he was talking about the heart of what God wants from his people. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is a giving love. Uh, This diagram kind of captures it. We're made for vertical generosity. We're made to give God our all. And we're also made for horizontal generosity. We're made to give others the same love that we even give to ourselves. Now, of course, it's, it's actually slightly more complicated than that diagram. It looks a little bit more like this. Now, we also saw over the last couple of weeks that our failure to love God with our all not only breaks the vertical line, 
breaks our relationship with God. He still loves us, but we don't love him with our all. But it also breaks the horizontal line, our relationship with each other. And now when we reach out to God or to each other, our natural default is actually to be self-seeking rather than radically self-giving. So instead of generosity being at our very core, there's self-interest, whether we see it in ourselves or not. Well, then a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God's not happy with us being like this. It's, it's a corruption of his design. We've turned things inside out. And so he intervenes to rescue his creation. That's what Jesus is doing at the cross, of course. Jesus is completely self-giving, vertically to God. He gives his all. Horizontally to us, he gives his very life in our place. And so at the cross, Jesus not only offers forgiveness, but he also offers restoration. Jesus calls us back to the generosity that we were made for. And so we saw these great words in Philippians that we're called to share Christ's mindset now. That, very briefly, that's what we saw over the last two weeks. And so then in the first week, we focused on being generous with ourselves, giving our very selves to each other. And then last week, we focused on being generous with our time. And today, we're going to focus in on being generous with our means, our stuff and our money. And we need to focus in like this, because even though God's called us back to generosity, it still doesn't come naturally to us. And it won't ever come naturally to us until Jesus comes back. There are real obstacles to us being generous in this life. And so we're going to have a look at just a couple of them now. God tells us that a massive obstacle to us being generous is greed. In fact, have a listen to how greed's talked about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and notice this, and greed, which is idolatry. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know anybody who sort of literally bows down to money. So how is greed idolatry? Well, an idol is just a God substitute. Greed is idolatry because we're giving our love to money rather than to God. When I I think of love of money, I think of some weird obsession. Um, If you grew up in the 80s, then you probably remember Scrooge McDuck. Just so I don't feel alone, was there anyone else who remembers Scrooge McDuck? Okay, good, quite a good proportion. So this guy was, you know, his love of money was so obsessive that he'd go for little swims in his coins. Now, Love of money, greed, is so much more subtle than that. Because greed includes a love of what money can bring, whether it's comfort and pleasure, whether it's respect and power, or even if it's just security and independence. I really doubt that we actually realise just how subtle and dangerous 
greed is for us. I mean, for example, do you see yourself as rich? I was reading this article this week. And it says that if your net worth is $4,400, so if your car, your bank balance, all your stuff adds up to $4,400, then you're in the top half of the world. You're rich. Now, that's pretty much all of us. But then listen to this. The article also says if your net worth is $76,000, you're in the top 10% of the world. You're ludicrously rich. Now, of course, being rich doesn't make us automatically greedy. But if Gina Reinhardt were to cry poor, I know what I'd be thinking. Are you serious? How can you get, how greedy can you get? And if we're crying poor, thinking we need more money before we can start being generous, then you can imagine why the rest of the world is justified in thinking, are you serious? And besides all that, of course, God says we don't need to be rich to be generous. God calls on us to be generous from our very core, which means we're always to be generous. The cure for greed is contentment, being happy with whatever you've got. In Philippians 4 verse 12, writing from prison, Paul says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he tells us the secret of his contentment. Have a look at it in verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret to contentment is knowing Jesus. Not knowing about him, but having a real relationship with him. Christ is so captivated, Paul, that he has no room or need for greed in his life. He doesn't want or need anything more. In fact, Paul says nothing else compares to Christ. When he does sort of look back at his life and and kind of compare it, look at at what he says in Philippians 3 verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. As good as anything else in this life may be, it just doesn't compare to what we have in really knowing Christ. The cure for greed is growing in our contentment as we grow day by day to know and love Christ more and more. But for many of us, our love of money has actually got more to do with fear than greed. So the reason that we struggle with generosity is that we want to be responsible. But if we scratch a bit deeper, sometimes the real reason we struggle is that we're afraid of the future. We're afraid that we'll find ourselves in a position where something goes wrong and we just don't have the money to get control of the situation. So what we want from money is security. Now, being responsible is a good thing, but looking to money to give us security is idolatry. 
Because the thing about idols is that they just can't bear the weight that we put on them. doesn't matter how much money we have, it just won't give us the kind of security that we're looking for. Money can't stop us getting sick. Money can't stop a drunk driver crashing into us. Money can't protect our loved ones. Money can't stop our marriage breaking down. It can't stop us getting old. It can't stop us dying and standing in front of God and Him saying to us, why didn't you trust me? The cure for fear is faith. It's trust. Trust in the one who provides true security. In Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. See that? See the power Jesus has? The power to bring everything under his control. We can trust him. We're citizens of something that can't be touched by sickness or death or loss. With Jesus, our security, it's guaranteed. You just can't find that kind of security anywhere else in this life. The final obstacle to generosity that I want to talk about is the apathy that comes from complexity. Often it feels just too hard to be generous. This is kind of what I was talking about with the first in the series that we had with the homeless person that I was, I was telling you about. It's, it's often just too hard to even know where to start. But you remember two weeks ago we saw we're not called to be generous to everyone. We're called to be generous to anyone. God wants us to put our faith into action with anyone we come across. And this is why. God has given us our wealth for a purpose. In fact, it's not just our wealth. More correctly, we're stewards of God's wealth. When the people of Israel generously gave towards the building of the temple, look at what David said in 1 Chronicles 29. This is what he said to God. Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. Our wealth is ours because God's given it to us. And he's given it to us for a purpose. Not for indulging in greed. Not for hedging ourselves in out of fear. Not for dithering in apathy. He's given it to us for action. Broughton Knox was a principal at a Bible college in Sydney. And he puts it like this. The money under our control or the property which we own is simply that part of God's creation which we have the responsibility for using and we must use it in accordance with the character of God, its creator. In other words, God calls us to be generous stewards. His character is generous and he wants us to be like that too. Now, because we're stewards, it's absolutely critical that we know how God wants us to to manage the money he's given to us. And so we're going to very briefly look at the four ways that God tells us to use our money. 
But just before we do that, though, we're going to do something a bit different. The musicians are going to come up. Come up, guys. We're going to break things up a bit, just so that we can concentrate on the second bit. We're going to sing this song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'll sing about it. It's actually saying, when I consider the mindset of Jesus, this song. When I consider the mindset, Christ's mindset, what impact does it have on me? So think about that as we sing this song. Please stand.
Thanks, guys, for that. So because we're stewards, it's absolutely critical that we know how God wants us to use our money. And so we're going to very briefly look at the four ways that God tells us in Scripture to use our money. The first thing that God wants us to do with our money is to take care of our families. We see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I don't think I actually need to say too much about being generous to our families. Most of us have no problem with this. In the passage, he's talking about um, your parents and things like that, but, um, but the principle in the Bible extends to kids, your kids as well. Now, I, I could imagine scenarios where we do need to hear, be generous, do need to be, be told that. Like some people are so careful with their money that they will never take their kids on holidays, even though they can afford it or never do anything fun. Or some people even are so not generous, rather, that they, um, that they make their kids feel bad for even needing to spend money. I don't know if you've ever come across that kind of situation. If that's you, you do need to hear, be generous with your family. Provide for them cheerfully. But in our culture, we tend to have no trouble being generous with our family, especially our kids. In fact, it's usually the opposite, isn't it? They can too easily become like idols, where everything revolves around them, where no expense is spared, music lessons, sport, education. You know, we don't think twice to spend money on their future. But if we're going to truly look to our kids' interests, then we need to make sure that we help them learn to be generous. We need to help them learn what it means to go without and yet be content. And I reckon kids need a fair bit of practice before they learn that. See, if it's only ever us parents making the sacrifices for our kids, we end up actually teaching them greed, don't we? I was at a funeral where the lady's son said his mother had taught them generosity. So to each kid, she'd give three jars, one for saving, one for spending, and one for being generous. It was brilliant. However we do it, though, we've got to make sure we teach our kids to be generous. The second thing that God wants us to do with our money is pay taxes. Did you expect to come to church and hear that today? (laughs) This segment is brought to you by the Labour and Liberal Party. (laughs) Romans 13, verse 6. This also is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, we generally try to pay as little tax as we can, and it's right that we should only pay our, um, our set obligation and, and not need to pay more. But if something's a little bit grey, something's a little bit suspect, pretty obviously a loophole, then don't take it. Say to the accountant, no, I'm happy to pay for that. In fact, if you're ever in the situation where you're not paying any tax, you should feel a pang of disappointment. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But God says paying taxes is what generous stewardship looks like. And so we should say, bring it on. The third thing that God wants us to do with our money 
is to provide for the poor. John says in 1 John 3.17, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Where we see real need in each other's lives, we're called to be generous. Now, from time to time, we do see real need in each other's lives. But in this fantastic country, because we're so generous paying our taxes, we don't often come across these basic kind of needs here. As far as I know, all of us at T&E have access to food and clothes and shelter. And so it's right for us to lift our vision and see the rest of the world where there is extreme need. It's hard to justify being a Christian in this country and not contributing something to lessen poverty in this world. If you don't contribute anything and you don't have a good reason for that, let me challenge you to do something today before this day ends. One good way to give to the poor would be to get on Compassion's website and to sponsor a child. The fourth thing that God wants us to do with our money is to advance God's kingdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. And we see here his general mode of operation. Paul uses every possible means to see people saved. Later on he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This means for us, if we're blessed with a swimming pool, use it to advance God's kingdom. How? I don't know. Get creative. Have the neighbours around. Invite church youth group around to come and use it. If you've got a great house, use it to advance God's kingdom. Have a community group meet there each week. If you've got a big car, great Christian books, interesting pets, anything. We're to use every possible means that we have to advance God's kingdom. Now another part of using our means to advance God's kingdom is partnering with others. In our reading today, Paul is thanking the Philippians for their gifts that are helping him advance God's kingdom. Look at what he says in 4 verse 18. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant, fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. I find that a striking way of putting it. I'm not, and I'm not sure that I've ever thought about um, whenever I've given money to things before. I'm not, I'm not sure I've thought about it in those terms. Even though God already owns everything, even though he doesn't need my help, yet when I give money to see God's kingdom grow, he sees that as a fragrant offering, as something that pleases him. Now, usually when us Christians are thinking about giving towards God's work, what we want to know is, how much should I give? But the Bible actually won't give us an answer to that question. Instead, it just gives us principles. It says, be deliberate, be generous, be sacrificial, and at the same time, be cheerful. 
Often though, um, among Christians, there's the idea that you should be giving a tithe that you've probably heard of. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were called to give 10% to one particular tribe that didn't receive any of the land in their inheritance. And so instead of making their living from the land, they were to get their living from the tithe. But there's several problems with just applying this system straight to us today. First one is if you add up all the kind of Old Testament um, contributions they were supposed to make, it's actually more like 22%. And on top of this, we're not under the Old Testament law anymore like that. We're not the political nation of Israel. We're not called to operate from a platform of law-keeping. We're called to operate from a platform of love and generosity. So the 10% kind of tithe doesn't apply to us as a strict rule. But having said this, picture this. You're a Jew living in the first century. You faithfully follow the law, so you give your 10%. And one day you hear Peter talking about Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. And you're just struck in that moment by the love of God shown for you in Christ. And you become a follower of Jesus. So then the very next week you're at church. What happens when the collection comes around? You realise you're not under the Old Testament law. So what do you do? Does God's generosity make you want to give less? Of course not. We see just how touched people were by God's generosity in Acts 2.24. We read, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do exactly the same. I've I've never done that myself, sold my property. But my point is, why on earth would the generous love of God poured out in Christ make us less generous than his Old Testament people? I think that giving 10% is a great place for us to start as Christians if we've never really challenged ourselves to be generous before. It's a really good place to begin. And the reality is, if we as a church were doing this, we would exceed our budget by a long shot. Now, please don't hear this as the church trying to get more money. Um, I get paid the same amount no matter what you give. Uh, I fund my private jet through other means. (laughs) My goal is for us to be so content with Christ that we cheerfully live up to the, the calling that we have in him. Radical generosity in all of life, all of life. And that's what Jesus says is actually best for us. And besides that, my very next point is that we shouldn't just be giving money here. Because at Teeny, we actually don't give any money from our budget to missionaries. I hope you realise that. We want you to partner individually with the missionaries and the best way is for you individually to think through how to be generous there as well. So don't just give money here. I reckon a great thing to do is to partner with a local kind of mission, something like AFES, and an overseas mission. And as you do it, to, to really take delight in where you're giving your money... Almost consider it like a a portfolio of kingdom investment. Because knowing that when we give money like that cheerfully, 
God actually takes delight in it too. Well, where are we at as we come to the end? Our mission was to figure out what it looks like to be generous. And we've seen that it looks like taking care of our families, paying taxes, providing for the poor and advancing God's kingdom. And I wanted us along the way to do a kind of litmus test on our heart. What's the result? Does the way that you approach money show greed or fear or apathy? Or does it show contentment, trust and stewardship? Who has your heart? Jesus or money? As I was doing this this week, for me, the real danger is fear. That's where it's at for me. Um, I... Greed, don't really care. Apathy is not such a big thing, but that kind of fear of the future is where I need to keep directing my heart back to Christ. And regardless of your answer, the path to generosity for any of us is actually to keep growing day by day in our love for Jesus. That's the way forward. Now, it'd be easy to walk away from today and, and to do nothing, but can I challenge you instead to have an honest look at who has your heart? And then to take a detailed look at how you're actually using the resources that God's given you. And if it's not generous, make a change. Not out of guilt, but flowing out of the contentment that comes from knowing and loving Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, you see our hearts so clearly, whereas we don't even know our own hearts Lord, money, sex, power, things like that diagnose our hearts fairly clearly. We ask, Lord, as we've examined your word today, that we would apply it to our hearts and see that your way is best for us, that a life of radical generosity towards you and towards each other with every aspect of our lives, Lord, is actually your blessing to us. Lord, help us to live this life day by day, not out of guilt or duty or such inferior things, but out of a real and living relationship with Jesus, out of being captivated by Him, out of our love for Him, knowing His love for us and His generosity for us far outstrips anything that we could ever come close to. Lord, we ask that um, You would help us to walk away and examine ourselves honestly and to make the changes that you want us to make. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.